1: So the magazine cover I'm looking at right now is 50 years old. It's the April 1970 issue of Glamour magazine. I don't spend much time reading Glamour from any year, but this one has Sybil Shepherd on the cover. There's a quality to Shepard, even at 19, that cuts through the golden blonde hair and the upturned nose. She looks as if she just overheard you saying something incredibly inappropriate at a party. She's smiling, sort of daring you to say it again. That cover caught the attention of Peter Bogdanovich and his wife, Polly Platt. They saw the magazine standing in a checkout line. It led to an audition, which took Sybil Shepard out of Memphis and into Hollywood stardom. And it did more than that. It caused Peter Bogdanovich both ecstasy and agony in equal measure. Uh, hello, it's uh, Ben Mankiewicz for Sybil. Hi. Now, 50 years later, Sybil Shepherd still has that way of looking at you. Hello. It strikes me as she walks down a flight of stairs to the living room of her Sherman Oaks home, how recognizable she still is. I fell hard for Sybil the first time I saw her TV series Moonlighting in 1985. I was 18.
2: Let's just forget this whole detective business. What are you you can about? Just take me.
1: She played home. Maddie Hayes, a former I'm model us, who finds herself business. running a detective agency.
3: What's the point if you won't even let me try? My
1: movie star crushes before then were more age appropriate, I mean, but Sybil was a, a fully formed moment. badass woman. There has to
2: be an easier way. We've talked to newspaper people, the police, the DA.
1: Smart, funny, sexy, of Rye, and maybe just a little mean.
2: What are we doing here?
1: This is a bar where a lot of
0: nefarious types go to get wrecked.
2: Oh, is this your regular hangout?
1: But before Sybil Shepherd would... was Maddie Hayes, she was J.C. Farrow. J.C., the teenage ingenue of Peter Bogdanovich's second film, his best film, The Last Picture Show.
2: I was on the cover of Glamour and 101 Pictures Inside, and that made my career. And then Peter saw one of those, and um, said, that's J.C.
1: And changed your life.
2: Absolutely.
1: I'm Ben Mankiewicz, and this is The Plot Thickens, a new podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This is Episode 3, Sybil. I asked Peter where he got the idea for The Last Picture Show. It was another random moment in a store. This time, Peter is shopping for toothpaste.
4: And um, I saw that paperback in in the drugstore, and it said, The Last Picture Show. I picked it up, and I thought, that sounds like a movie I ought to direct. I looked at the back and said, Teenagers in Texas. I said, I don't give a shit about Teenagers in Texas. Put it back.
1: A few weeks later, a friend of Peter's, actor Sal Mineo, famous for A Rebel Without a Cause, brought the same book over to Peter's house.
4: He says, I always wanted to play the lead in this, but I'm too old now. Maybe you might be interested in making it. It's a good book. Then I said, oh, okay, I will put it aside. And for a while, Peter forgot
1: about The Last Picture show. Then a producer showed up with a copy and told him he should make a movie out of it.
4: Uh, finally, I said, "Polly, will you read this fucking thing and see what you think?" <laughs> so she reads it, and she said, "Well, she said it's a very good book, but I don't know how you make it as a picture." That was the key line, because I always liked the idea of how to do how do you do it, and it always inspired me to think how do you do it. I was of the opinion that anything could be made into a picture.
1: The novel, The Last Picture Show, was written by Larry McMurtry, a Pulitzer Prize winner. Picture Show is a coming-of-age novel a melancholy story about teenagers in small-town Texas.
4: thought you might want to go to the picture show. Yeah, might as well go. he not miss last night. Dwayne
1: Jackson and Sonny Crawford are the two main characters played in Peter's movie by a young Jeff Bridges and Timothy Bottoms. They're friends, but they fight over the most beautiful girl in town. That's Jacy, Sybil's character.
2: I want us to get married. What? I really do. You get married? Just as soon as you want to. Don't you want Since
1: to? Picture Show, Jeff Bridges has become an Oscar winner, one of the finest actors of his generation. Perhaps even bigger than his Academy Award for Crazy Heart is his status as an A list stoner icon for his performance in The Big Lebowski. But before all of that was The Last Picture Show, his first major role. Well,
5: not a goddamn thing to stay
1: for. Ben Johnson plays a character named Sam the Lion.
5: The time I watered a horse at this tank was more than
6: 40 years ago.
1: He's a wise old cowboy, a father figure. Johnson had been a real-life cowboy, a rodeo champ, and a stuntman. John Ford had cast him in his westerns in small parts, not too many lines. When Peter was working on a book about Ford, he went to the set of one of those westerns and met
4: Ben Johnson. And I liked him, and I thought he'd be perfect. Just gray him up a little bit because he was too young. So I sent him the script and offered it to him. He called me back. He said, no, I can't do it, Pete. Why? Too many words. Too many words, Pete. Oh, Ben, you'd be wonderful in this. No, no, can't do it. So I called Ford, and I said, I've got this really great part for old Ben, but he says there's too many words. Oh, he always says that. We were doing Yellow Ribbon. He came on the set. He told to this script girl, any words for me today? And she'd say, yes, he'd sulk. And if he said, no, you just have to ride the horse, he'd be happy. Where is old Ben? He's in Tucson. Oh, uh, give me his number, I'll call him. Would you? Yeah, I'll call him for you. Fifteen minutes later he calls me back. He'll do it.
1: Yeah? Turns out Johnson wasn't convinced, but he did go see Peter with the script in hand. He still had the same complaint.
4: Oh, Pete there's too many goddamn words, and then we on and on and on. And finally, he finally he goes, he slams the script closed and he goes, Oh, all right, I'll do the goddamn thing. And what what promoted that moment was when I said, Ben, you in this part could win an Oscar. And he said, why do you say that? I said, because I think it's true. All right, I'll do the goddamn thing. That's how it went. And he won the fucking Oscar. I didn't think he would, but I thought he might. (laughs) Along with assembling his cast,
1: Peter also handpicked his crew, the people who would help him create the look and feel of his first big movie. He hired Frank Marshall again, that college kid he'd met at a party in L.A the one who helped him on that first low-budget movie, Targets.
6: I was working in a restaurant in Aspen and in the marina, and then I sort of took the sleeping bag tour of Europe. And I got a letter there at the American Express from my dad saying, that guy Bog Slanovich called again. You need to call him. (laughs) And about five days later, I flew right home. And it was different because he was now working for a real production company, which was BBS Productions. And I had to go meet the producer, Harold Schneider, the movie
1: business was still so new to Frank. When Schneider asked him how much money he wanted, he had no idea how to answer.
6: I didn't even know what per diem meant back then. I said, i well, like $150 a week. And he said, I'll give you 140 He said, done. <laughs> so two days later, I had shaved, uh, gotten a butch haircut, because I, I didn't really have long hair, but I knew I was going to Wichita Falls, Texas. So I cut my hair, and I went down, and I started working as location manager. Peter's wife, Polly,
1: was the costume and set designer. She made sure the movie had the visuals telling you right away this was the 1950s. After the movie came out, Hollywood took notice of that style. So really, Picture Show launched Polly's career, too.
6: Together, Frank and Polly
1: scouted locations, deciding where to shoot each scene.
6: I did learn my first lesson of location scouting. I took Peter to see somebody he fell in love with, and then I couldn't get it. So I learned, make sure you can get the place before you show it to the director.
1: Along the way, Peter made one of the boldest decisions of his filmmaking career. He chose to shoot the last picture show in black and white, but he didn't come to this decision on his own. He got advice from one of his heroes. After the break, Peter meets Orson Welles. And it
2: scared Hollywood to death. They we're all after
0: them. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Shortly after the release of Peter's first movie, Targets, he got a call from Orson Welles. Welles was in his 50s then, but to young filmmakers like Peter, Orson Welles was already a legend. He was the director who broke all the rules with Citizen Kane. He was the Broadway phenomenon who appeared on the cover of Time magazine at the age of 23. And he was the radio producer who caused mass panic with his 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds.
5: Wait
3: a minute, something's happening. Pumped shape is rising out of the pit.
1: By the late 60s, Wells wasn't directing much, but he was still doing a little acting to make money. Orson had read the monograph Peter had written about him for the Museum of Modern Art seven years earlier. Finally, Orson Wells wanted to meet Peter Bogdanovich. Orson was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel and invited Peter to lunch at the hotel's polo lounge. It's the kind of place where Hollywood takes notice of who's lunching with whom. Part of the fun comes afterwards, you get to drop a few names. I've been there twice, both times with my dad and Warren Beatty. Look, even I can't help it. Anyway, everyone would have noticed Orson.
4: I brought him a copy of the John Ford book I had done rather recently. And after lunch, he'd, he's leafing through the book, kind of flipping through it. he said, isn't it too bad you're a big director now? You can't uh, do a little book like this about me. I said, "No, I'd love to do. I'd love to do a book, uh, interview book with you." He said, "Good, let's do it." This is Peter Bogdanovich. I first met Orson Welles toward the end of 1968, and not long after we met in late January 1969, we began taping our conversations for a book about his career that he hoped would set the record straight. For the next few years, they met
1: often for these interviews. Peter recorded all of them on an old tape recorder.
4: Believing in omens, you started shooting Citizen Kane a year after the day oh, I was born. Shut up. We've is. been talking about that people get better.
2: the day you were born, it seems Pe- to me. People get,
4: <laughs> <laughs> you said people get better as they get older, yeah. so don't. Uh...
2: As they get older, not as they ripen. <laughs>
1: Peter was 29 when he started these interviews with Orson, who was 53. To call Orson Peter's mentor seems insufficient. I think in some ways Orson reminded Peter of his dad. Like Borislav Bogdanovich, Orson was an artist. And just like Borislav, Orson had
4: sophisticated taste. He knew about everything. He was very general educated. He had general knowledge of just everything that was going on, you know much more than me. I, 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 I was much more single-minded. Jeff, let me see you, sweetie.
1: When Peter started doing tests on location, he realized color made everything look too pretty. The last picture show was not supposed to be pretty. Peter wanted sad Texas, drab Texas, the kind of place you stay because you have nowhere else to go. So he called on Orson.
4: I'd like to get that same depth of field you had in Canaan and in. Touch of Evil in most of your pictures, the depth of field. And he said, you'll never get it in, in color. I said, I don't know. They've got faster film now. Or you'll never get it in color. What do I do? Shoot it in black and white. Well, I'd like to, but I don't think they'll let me. Have you asked? <laughs> and when Peter asked,
1: the producers, to his surprise, said yes. That left one final decision. Who would play J.C.? the girl who comes between the movie's protagonists, Jeff Bridges and Tim Bottoms. Peter casts Sybil Shepard in the role, and it became the decision that changed the course of Peter's life.
4: I fell in love with Sybil Shepherd on picture show, and Polly was there. It was a mess. Quickly, Peter's
1: most important creative moment became one of his most turbulent.
4: My marriage broke up. My father died. I fell in love with Sybil. All that happened while we were shooting this picture 10 weeks
1: Sybil and Peter met for the first time at her audition at a hotel on Central Park South in New York City. Peter didn't ask Sybil to read lines. That might have been the way other directors, most directors, cast their films, particularly with a newcomer to acting like Sybil. But not Peter. Instead, he watched Sybil, how she moved, the way she spoke.
2: And so I came in, and I was in my cut-off jeans and um, started picking at, the, at a flower, Rose kind of destroying it on a coffee table, and I think that he liked that.
1: Peter's wife, Polly, thought Sybil was perfect for the part of JC. There isn't much footage of Polly out there, but she was interviewed in a 1991 documentary about working on Picture Show. She's in Texas, sitting on the side of the road as pickup trucks drive by, you know, she when old she's old, asked she about what made
3: Sybil stand out. Was it she also had? what I called a sexual chip on her shoulder, as if she was daring you to try anything. And I thought it was incredibly... That was what made her so perfect for the part. She just seemed perfect. And that's J.C. And there is one in everybody's life, I believe. If it's in the second grade or the eighth grade, she is that girl who seems to have it all.
1: The character of J.C is a contradiction. She's a naive small-town Texas girl and a cunning seductress. She's a product of the 1950s when the movie is set, but seems to embody the freedom and exploration of the early 70s when the movie was made. J.C. wants more than what her mother settled for, a small-town life and an unfulfilling marriage. J.C. uses sex to get what she wants. Well, on. want Once in me? a while, it n- backfires.
2: I know you couldn't do it. Now I never get to not be a virgin. What do we tell everybody? The whole class knows. I just want to cry. I think you're the meanest boy I ever saw. My mother was dead right about you.
1: In real life, Sybil was 20 and having an affair with her co-star, Jeff Bridges. Bridges was 21. He came from an elite acting family. His father, Lloyd Bridges, was a TV and movie star. But the last picture show was Jeff's Big Break, the movie that got him noticed in Hollywood. His performance in picture show earned him his first Oscar nomination. But about halfway through shooting the film, he lost his girlfriend to the director. Bridges never had a chance. He got called away for a week of military service. He was in the Coast Guard. Peter stepped in
4: and made a move on Sybil. It happened when I said to her, you're going to be alone tonight. And she said, I'm always alone. Whatever that meant. But I thought it was a hint. So the next thing I knew, we were lovers.
1: Peter, don't forget, was married to Polly, and they had two young daughters, one
4: three, the other a newborn. I wasn't consciously unhappy. I just suddenly felt this thing for Sybil, and and suddenly, I mean, it's just, like, overwhelms you, you know? And particularly when you're making a movie, and you're sort of helping the the ingenue find the part, you're creating a, a person there. And, uh, you know, you fall, I said to her once, I don't know who I want to sleep with more, you or J.C. J.C. was the character's name. I fell madly in love with Sybil, which is an occupational hazard if you're a director, it really is. And Sybil fell in love with Peter.
2: I mean, that was, a, that was the first great love of my life. Not that I hadn't had lovers, Lord mercy.
1: There were still five more weeks of shooting to get through when Peter and Sybil began their affair. It was no secret on set, even Polly knew. She moved out of the hotel room she and Peter were sharing, but they kept working together.
3: I wasn't going to let it interfere with my participation and my part of the picture, and I sort of put it all on the shelf. In other words, um, I just moved it aside, and I thought, That it really wasn't important, and I really believed that every director would have an affair with his leading lady, and my husband was not going to be any exception.
1: Polly died in 2011, so we can't know for sure how she was feeling. She gave that interview 20 years after Picture Show, so maybe that's why she's able to talk about it like that. She doesn't sound hurt, she sounds detached. Frank Marshall was apparently the last to know about the affair. He was stunned.
6: I remember the moment we were at the Ramada Inn in uh, Wichita Falls, and the Daly's room was upstairs. I was running up to make sure the projector was ready and everything, and Polly was coming downstairs with her clothes. And I went, What are you doing? She said, What do you mean, what am I doing? Don't you know? And I went, What? And she said, Peter's having an affair with Sybil. And I almost fell off the stairs, uh, because I I had no idea. Frank
1: believed Peter and Polly had a great relationship, more than just a marriage. They had this creative partnership. Polly told him Peter and Sybil were having a fling, that it would end after the movie.
6: I think she thought that that would be it on that movie.
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty clear that she thought, all right, this is going to be his little... Yeah,
6: this is the sort of... Too much, too soon. Living big, out what right, the sure, old directors yeah, did, right.
1: you know, that whole thing. Polly was not alone. Even Peter and Sybil believed the affair would end once work on the film was done.
4: Sybil and I kept saying, this is just during the movie, we're not going to do this. I'm you know, happily married. <laughs> that was absolutely not correct. We couldn't stay away from each other, and so... And you tried, but it just it didn't... It didn't work.
1: Polly thought the whole thing played out like a movie with a lousy script... She said as much to a biographer years later. He used to say he felt old, and she made him feel young, Polly said of Peter, and he'd never been with a girl like that. Then she said something remarkable. I understood his desire. I wanted it for him, she said. But I didn't want the consequences, of course, and I couldn't imagine how horrible the future would be. The randomness of life is so strange. Maybe if Jeff Bridges doesn't have to leave for a week. It might not have happened. Might not have happened.
4: That's right. Might not have happened.
1: The Last Picture Show was only Peter's second movie, but he directed as though he'd always been a filmmaker. He was confident and seemed to know what he wanted at every turn. For example, on Peter's set, the crew was not allowed to speak to the actors. Peter didn't want anyone else getting inside their heads. He wanted them all to himself. When he wasn't directing them, he was eating his
4: meals with them. So I didn't want them taking away time with them when I could be with them, you know?
1: And because they were so young, you didn't want anybody else. You, yeah, you thought they could be what influenced?
4: Yeah, or 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 damaged. For example, uh, Steve Stephen J. Friedman, who gets credit as producer, he had nothing to do with. it, He just owned the rights. But he came to visit, and I couldn't stand him. But he, uh, I saw Sybil was kind of down. I said, "What's the matter?" Nothing. I said, "What's the matter?" Well, Mister Friedman said, "I went out of my mind." What did he say? He said he thought my performance could be a little bit more enthusiastic. I said, I'm going to kill the mother. And I called Birch and I said, if the Friedman isn't out of, out of Texas, forget which out of Texas, by tomorrow I'll kill him. What happened? And I told him, I said, get him the fuck out of here. He's he out the next day, gone. That's what I meant about talking to the actors. I wouldn't allow that.
1: Peter's control over the actors created a wedge between him and the crew. But Peter didn't really care. What he wanted, all he wanted, was to get the
4: performances he was looking for. Okay, now you've you're started, right, JC? That's right. I knew that they had to be close to me, and I had to be close to them to get what I wanted. And uh, I just didn't want to waste time talking to the crew when they could be associating with the other actors or me. When Peter didn't get what he wanted, he could be difficult.
0: Is he ro- you It wasn't
1: the demands he was making, uh, it was the way he made them like the time he blew up at his director of photography, Robert Surtees. Surtees was 64 years old, a three-time Oscar winner for Best Cinematography. Peter was just 31, an unknown director with one movie. Did you fight with uh, Surtees on Picture Show?
4: Well, we had one scuffle, I guess. I was r- real rough on him.
1: There's a scene at the end of Picture Show where Jeff Bridges' character, Dwayne, is heading off to Korea. He's in his military uniform. He and Timothy Bottoms' character, Sonny, have just spent a night going to the movies and drinking beer. Why don't you
2: take care of the car for me? What, your mom don't need it?
1: They are about to say goodbye. Dwayne asks Sonny if he's seen J.C. lately. And what follows is a vulnerable
4: moment between two friends.
2: I ain't over yet, you know? I ain't over here.
4: yet. The line is when he says, um, about J.C., he says, I ain't over it yet. It's the damnedest thing. I ain't over yet. And we shot that. And before we shot it, I had walked Jeff up the street and walked him back with my arm around him just talking. And I said, OK, let's do the shot. And we did the shot. And it was brilliant. And then Surtees comes over to me and says, we'll have to take it again. I said, why? He said, the, the light was underexposed. I said, "You didn't know that." He said, "Well, you moved. You walked. We're walking down the street." I said, "Well, we well, walked back, didn't we?" And I got very angry. He walked off the set. Anyway, somebody came over and said, "Bob is very upset." And so, so I I, did, I know that I apologized, but I said, "I'm just a mistake. We got past it."
1: Imagine being thirty-one years old and running a set like that, never second-guessing yourself. But in a way, Peter was prepared. He'd seen thousands of movies growing up. Then there were those monographs he'd written for MoMA. And all those directors he'd interviewed, the greats who came before him, John Ford, Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, those conversations with those men imprinted in Peter not just what a director did, but who a director was.
4: Well, you know, it seemed to me logical that if you're going to make pictures, you should talk to the people who made them and made good ones. My father was like that. He studied studied the other painters, the great painters that he admired. He studied them. He looked at their work. I, I did study the pictures, not like pedantically, but I learned a lot, you know. Peter recorded hours and hours
1: of conversations with directors and actors. Hitchcock interviewed. They are a detailed record of Peter's obsession with film, a record of how he learned to become Peter Bogdanovich, the director.
3: Just where do
5: you think you're going? Oh. We're strangers here, mister. We heard about there was work in a place called Tavares. Yeah, well
1: you In 1969, Peter interviewed actor Henry Fonda about how John Ford directed him in The Grapes of Wrath, the great 1940 adaptation of John Steinbeck's novel. It's the story of the Jode family, who lose their farm during the Depression and head to California in search of work and opportunity. Fonda plays Tom Jode, who gets into trouble and has to leave the family. There's a scene toward the end of the movie where Tom says goodbye to his mother.
5: Tommy. Tommy. Ain't you gonna tell me goodbye? I didn't know, Ma. I didn't know Ford, too.
1: Peter asks Henry Fonda, did they rehearse that scene? We rehearsed it a lot, technically.
5: But every time we would get to the position and sit down, Ford would cut the rehearsal. So Ma and I never said those words and I get emotional now remembering it. We never said those words out loud until we were in the take. This was Ford's whole idea. He didn't want to dissipate the emotion, and that's typical of him and everything he's done that I've done. Don't dissipate the emotion. Get it in the first take. Get the emotion, the first emotion, get the fresh emotion, all that. Give me your hand. Goodbye. Goodbye,
2: Tommy.
5: It was like getting a racehorse up to it and not letting him go until finally we were just like this, let us show you. It's a hell of a scene.
1: Peter soaked all of this up and tucked it away for when he needed it, when he might need to coax a big emotional moment from one of his actors. Turns out he needed it on The Last Picture Show. If things were already turbulent on set, they were about to get much worse. Not long after Peter and Sybil started sharing a motel room, Peter got a call from his mother. His father had a stroke.
4: I had to go see him, and the only time I could go was on a Saturday night, because we shot six days a week. So I went on a Saturday and came back on a late Sunday.
1: Borislav was unconscious when Peter got there. But my mother
4: said, I don't want you to go to the hospital because he's, he's not hes not conscious and he has things all over him, in his ears, and his I don't want you to see him that way.
1: Borislav died a few days later, just after Thanksgiving, 1970. Peter never got to say goodbye. He went back to Arizona for the funeral, but he couldn't stay long. The cast, the crew, everyone was in Texas, waiting for Peter to return to work. My dad died five and a half years ago. His absence can still interrupt a day for me, grind it to a halt. I can't imagine directing a movie, your first big movie, just days after losing your father. Then, in a cruel intersection of art and life, after Peter gets back to Texas, one of the first scenes he has to shoot is a funeral. In the film, Ben Johnson's character, Sam the Lion, has a stroke and dies. And then you come back and you shoot Sam the lion's yeah, funeral, funeral. Yeah. What do you remember of that? Those couple of days?
4: Um. I just felt very identified with that scene. I, I don't know. It was, it was just like well, this is weird. Now I'm burying Ben Johnson. I just buried my dad. I don't know what to say about it. It was just strange coincidence. Peter
1: had already storyboarded the funeral scene before his father died, so he knew how it would go. He decided not to open with a traditional wide shot, which would have been the typical approach. Instead, he remembered something Alfred Hitchcock once
4: told him, something he never forgot. Very clear, I remember Hitch said to me once, Never use an establishing shot to establish. I thought about that for a while, and I didn't know quite what he meant, and then I figured it out. And if you look at the last picture show, the, the uh, funeral scene, Ben Johnson's funeral scene, I don't go to the wide shot until the very end of the sequence because of what Hitchcock said. He's right. Wait until it has dramatic impact. It, had, it would have none at the beginning, that wide shot, because it's just a funeral. But if at the end, it has a dramatic impact at the end of the sequence. Shooting took only 10 weeks on the last picture show. In the final
1: scene, Sonny, that's Timothy Bottom's character, returns to the home of Ruth Popper, a depressed, lonely housewife married to the high school gym teacher. Sonny and Ruth had been having an affair until Sonny dropped her for J.C. Hi. Can I have a cup of
6: coffee with you?
1: It is one of those movie moments that is impossible to forget once you've seen it. Ruth, played by Cloris Leachman, doesn't so much yell at Sonny as lay bare every drop of emotional pain she's been holding on to. She's been rejected, first by her husband, then by Sonny. And she's stuck here in this stifling, tiny Texas town.
2: What am I doing apologizing to you? Why am I always apologizing to you, you little bastard? Three months I've been apologizing to you without you even being here. I haven't done anything wrong. Why can't I quit apologizing? You're the one ought to be sorry. I wouldn't still be in my bathroom.
1: The story is that you literally said to both of them, for Cloris Leachman in that last scene, don't rehearse it. Yeah, don't rehearse it. Just do it for me. This is where Peter remembered how John Ford directed Henry Fonda.
4: And then after she did it, I said, you got it. You just won the Oscar. She said, no, I can do it better. I said, no, you can't.
1: You wouldn't let her do it again? No.
4: Peter's prediction was right.
1: Cloris Leachman won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. To this day, she
4: said, I could have done it better. I said, Cloris, you won the fucking Oscar. What do you want? You probably want it for that scene. Because it was the last thing people saw. I remember Bert Schneider says to me one time, after we'd finished the picture, he's a producer, we were finishing the picture, he says, do you think maybe you should cut that last scene and have the kid drive the truck, turn it around and go drive back and that's the end? I said, Bert, I made the picture because of that last scene.
1: What Peter couldn't have predicted, even the most confident 31-year-old version of Peter Bogdanovich, was the reaction critics had to the film. Bert Schneider, the producer, was the first to give Peter the news.
4: Well, I was directing Doc, What's Up Doc, um, at Warner Brothers, right here in this lot. And um, they, had, they had a little uh, kind of bungalow for me on the set, you know. And uh, Bert calls me and he says, are you sitting down? I said, I am now. And he said, let me read you the opening sentence from Newsweek. The Last Picture Show is not only the best film in a rather dreary season or something, it is also the best film by a young American director since Citizen Kane. I said, shit, really? He says that? He said, yep, Jesus. They knock on the door, Peter, we're ready for you. And I walked out of there thinking, I'm a pretty good director. <laughs> according to Newsweek. And uh, so I was, felt very good, and I, I, it was a good, good day. I, I had fun.
1: Peter Bogdanovich had just been compared to Orson Welles, his hero, the director of Citizen Kane, and Orson was thrilled for his young protege.
4: He read the reviews because he said to me, reading your reviews is like opening presents for Christmas, <laughs> which was very sweet.
1: The association would be prescient as the lives of the two men would grow more deeply intertwined. The most powerful male figure in Peter's life, his father, was now gone. And Orson, in some ways, would take his place. As for Sybil, everything was about to change.
2: I got the greatest education in film, that anyone... Could ever get from Peter MacDermid?
1: Why does it make you emotional to think about how Peter was your acting coach and helped give you this career?
2: Kleenex, and there were Kleenexes because I'm grateful.
1: And Peter, he was set to become a star. My next
5: guest is a young director whose second film, uh, The Last Picture Show, has been an enormous success. Uh, all his life he's wanted to make movies, and he did.
1: But he discovers that stardom isn't all it's cracked up to be.
4: Success is very hard to handle, and then the failure after success is even harder. Uh, and we had, I had all, the, all of that in the 70s. I had three hits in a row and three flops in a row. Next time on The Plot
1: Thickens. Angela Caron is our director of podcasts. Our story editors are Joanne Farian and Susan White, editing by Mike Volgaris. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music, mixing by Tim Pelletier and Glenn Matulo. Production support from Yako Friedman, Susanna Zapata, Julie Batone, Mario Riles, Heather Gelzer, Philip Richards, Ben Holst, DePonker Mazumder, Bailey Tyler, Zara Chowdhury, Jeff Stafford, and Millie Decherico. Our web team is Josh Lubin, Mike McKenzie, and Matthew Ownby. Special thanks to Scott McGee, Steve Denker, and the Warner Media Podcast Network. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tavish, who'd rather watch Seven Brides for Seven Brothers than Dr. Strangelove. Why are we friends? Check out our website at TCM.com backslash ThePlotThickens. It has lists of all the movies we've talked about, info about each episode, tons of great photos, a lot of cool stuff. Again, that's tcm.com/backslash/the-plot-thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.